Buckaroo. Holiday. Buckaroo. Holiday. Welcome to Buckaroo Holiday. Coming to you unredacted from the Schoolyard Gents, an arts lab and after-hours dive in porous, spongy Bayshore, New York. I'm Sport Murphy. Leave off the mic for silence. (laughs) This is the second of our duple weekly pseudocasts. We'd like to thank you for the response to our premiere presentation. The answering machine messages, telegrams, I can only describe it as encouraging. I'm starting to think that maybe... Just maybe. Proto Disco from 1973, ultra high frequency with We're on the Right Track. That song was revisited later in the 70s by two separate acts. One was South Shore Commission and the other was Blue Magic. Toss of the dice which one to play because they are all almost identical. Blue Magic, a little sweeter, a little slicker. We're on the right track. 
South Shore Commission, different key. But, um, nah, this is the one. Ultra high frequency with We're on the Right Track. But let's say that isn't your kind of dance music. How about some polka? Here's Dinodal. Dinodal? Crater. Crater. What? Knudel? Dikenadal? He's lucky I'm not saying Canadian, C R A D A D L. Hang my. Cherry. Cherry. Hang my ladle. Hang my ladle in the kitchen, mammy mine. Stack us a rain in. I'm laughing. I'm paying for the date. Hurry up. Okay, Jerry. Let's go. Here's the song. Internet station in your face all over the place. Gorilla is what I want you to call me. I'm so big, you got to look on me. I got something so
The DeFranco Family, featuring a 14-year-old Tony DeFranco there boasting of his simian sexual prowess. I'm thinking of a time when I was young, after a long purgatory of social exclusion, I'd found a social circle, buddies, to hang with, to drink cheap beer with. And we drank lots of that cheap beer, and we sang a lot of songs. Social problem was taken care of. Of course, this time was accompanied by an increase in certain yearnings, which were not as easily satisfied. Cable TV was relatively new, and you could catch something like Young Lady Chatterley, which uh, would do to a point. But really, that sort of thing was a gateway drug. Sort of like sucking on whippets. And then you suddenly felt the urge for heroin. VHS tapes were very new at the time. And very costly, particularly porno. Like, we wanted to buy my brother Brian a copy of Debbie Does Dallas for his birthday. Once we tracked it down, which was hard enough, the prices on it, my God, marron. We're talking $80, $90, whatever they could get. It was ridiculous. Prohibitive. Of course, it goes without saying that the likes of Pornhub were not even dreamed about. We, we, forget it. We, nah, nah, nah. You, you guys don't know. Y'all don't know how lucky you are, how good you have it today with regard to wank fodder. We just suffered through. But there was a place called the Lake Ronkonkoma Art Cinema. Back when I was a young, young child, and we would come out to Ronkonkoma from Brooklyn, New York, for uh, summer vacations and visits to Grandma, this was a regular movie theater. It was in a strip mall dominated by a Woolworths store. My main memory of it as a child was coming out for a weekend and there being a circus of sorts in the parking lot of the strip mall and a gigantic elephant voided spectacularly all over the parking lot. This tsunami of ordure. Well, talk about foreshadowing, the wholesome theater that showed movies like The Sound of Music and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to us when we were kids, eventually became the Lake Ronkonkoma Art Cinema, Art Cinema, showing double features of things like Seven Into Snowy and The Jade Pussycat, starring John Holmes and Linda Wong, which was a double feature I actually caught with my teenage friends. There were never too many people in the theater, so three or four of us would be seated up front, real close to the screen, close to every pimple and pore. And elsewhere in the theater, there would be fellas furtively dealing with whatever they had to deal with. So we would laugh and woe betide the first guy who had to go hit the bathroom during one of these double features. The mockery was relentless. The only other time I recall going there, I don't remember the name of the second feature, But I do recall that it starred the actor Rory Calhoun, by then on Fairly Hard Times, in a non-sexual role. Whatever the title of that one was, I remember the main feature vividly. It was Femmes de Sade. Femmes de Sade by the director Alex Direnzi. 
a film so vile that it's still very difficult to find an uncut version of it. I won't describe to you the reasons why this film was so vile or why it's largely illegal right now to sell an uncut version of it, but I will uh, play a song from it. I actually tracked down a bootleg VHS of this film because I remembered this song and wanted to hear it. It's the denouement of the entire saga, which was something I would describe as a revenge orgy. In the middle of all this uh, turpitude, which you'll sort of hear in the background of this song, there were uh, a bunch of guys in white tuxedos standing around singing and clapping and doing this number. You can look it up if you want to know more about the movie. I'm done talking about it. Now, this is going to sound like crap because it's from a uh, several generations removed VHS tape re-recorded for your entertainment, but you won't hear it anywhere else. Femmes de Sade.
Your grandparents smell of warm cum. Oh, come on, Thurl. Jeez. I do not understand the human race. Maybe we're due now for just some, just some enjoyable music. So let's start with something by Warm Sounds, whoever they were. I'll read to you what June Southworth, whoever she is, said about Warm Sounds. The Warm Sounds is a first-rate duo comprising two dream-come-true type gents called Denver Gerard and Barry Younghusband. Denver is six foot two inches worth of South African gentleman with brown eyes and near black hair. A collector of Japanese ivory carvings, he is fascinated by all things oriental and studies Japanese folklore. Quiet and slow burning, Denver studied English at the University of America in South Africa. This mixture produced the facility for languages, which is helpful in translating the sound's songs into continental languages. Barry Younghusband is a personable blue-eyed blonde, also over six foot, whose hobby supreme is making lampstands. Modeling in perspex is another sideline. Together, Denver and Gerard write highly commercial songs and make their warm sounds, of course. And so wrote June Southworth. Now, maybe it's just me, but I get the feeling June Southworth had a marked preference for Denver Gerard over the perspex modeling Barry Young husband. I don't know.
sure you spotted uh, Gustav Holtz's Jupiter there. You know, the planets has served as kind of like SCOBY for any number of musical works, and that one, Jupiter, bringer of joy, was especially well used by Frank Zappa. I'm absolutely free, that magnificent second mother's album. And here it was done by Manfred Mann's Earth Band, otherwise best known for turning Springsteen's line, cut loose like a deuce, into wrapped up like a douche. I don't know. Man, oh man, Manfred Mann. Knew how to adapt, I'll tell you. He led his bands from great bonehead Brit beat stuff like uh, Do Why Diddy Diddy. Then he did Pop Psych, like my childhood favorite, My Name is Jack. Then there was a period of Bob Dylan covers, and then this really weird proggy jazz rock that's well worth listening to. Maybe I'll play some on one of these shows. And then the kind of pop you just heard, that was from 1973, Joybringer. Thorin Shield, before that, an L.A. band, that was from 1968. I think this song, the best of it, is flat out great. It's, uh, you know, the rare period obscurity that feels kind of timeless. Something about the singing reminds me of Willie Nelson, of all things. And the first cut was that Warm Sounds song. It was a B-side, and it sounds like it. It's a little tossed off, but I think that adds to its charm. It's not as overproduced as a lot of the pop of that period. And it's pretty upbeat, but that little dark twist in the lyric where picking daisies turns to pushing daisies, 
That throws a little vinegar in the mix, I'd say. More fun, more music. The Four Seasons, Association, Dave Clark Five, Chicago, the Temptations, Like His Brothers, the Jackson Five, The Beatles, Three Dogs, Night, Herman Thomas, and the Papas, The Four Tops, Clearwater Revival, Elvis Presley, The, the Beach Boys, Donna, Aretha Franklin, The Monkey, Gary Lewis, and the Playboy, Roy Orbison, Orbison Diana Ross, the Simon and Garfunkel, Ron S, Lou Chris, Johnny River. Let's get it started. Since this is Buckaroo Holiday, I am behoven to discuss with you the official cocktail of our show, the Buckaroo. Any visitor to the schoolyard gents is familiar with this refreshing libation. So on your virtual visits here, I recommend you accompany each listen with a few of these. I'll just make one and describe my method. You may jot these instructions on a notepad or just refer to this recording. Feel free to pause as necessary to perfect your technique. But I advise you to follow my instructions to the letter. My buckaroo recipe is a variation on one I found in a cocktail guide from the UK. Now, the Limeys had a good basic idea, and they graciously acknowledged the deep Americanness of the drink by calling it a buckaroo. After all, we're using that most star-spangled of mixers, Coca-Cola, and that uniquely stateside whiskey, bourbon. I use Jim Beam 
not only to avoid being a pretentious cunt, as they say in Great Britain, but to avoid the appearance of being a pretentious cunt, as they say in Great Britain, but also because I prefer it to the more expensive bourbons. Now, if you feel better about using Makers or something like that, knock yourself out. If you try Pappy Van Winkles, give me a call. I'll come and dissuade you and find a better use for it. Note that the Coca-Cola has to be, I repeat, has to be, the Mexican type in the glass bottles. Our southern neighbors wisely insist on cane sugar rather than the corn syrup used up here. And the difference is incredible. Do a blind tasting if you doubt me. As a side note, and I hope this doesn't even need to be said, the use of Pepsi-Cola or RC-Cola or any other proxy pop is beneath contempt, and I'll entertain no further discussion on the matter. Just as we tipped our red, white, and blue top hat to old Mexico with our Coke, we looked to the Caribbean, namely Trinidad and Tobago, for our next requisite component, Angostura bitters. Now don't let any bewhiskered millennial mixologist try and substitute some alternative hep ocarant brand of bitters. That would be an egregious error, resulting in a non-buckaroo. But those are your essentials. As for barware accessories, I'll make suggestions based on scrupulous trial and error. And if you choose to forego my recommendations, it's your funeral. I can only shine a light. It's up to you to follow the path. For example, I always use a John F. Kennedy Memorial cocktail glass. These are almost as old as me, and you'll likely have to search eBay for them. I do, because glasses sometimes break, and I'm on my third set of these, at least. Sometimes, at the schoolyard gents, enthusiasm gets the better of one, or another one, and shit gets busted up some. In any event, any 10-ounce tall glass will do, martyred president or not. Now uh, we're going to need some crushed ice. Today I'm using the built-in ice crusher on my fridge, but for years I've used a mid-century vintage swing-away hand crank ice crusher. These can be procured on eBay relatively inexpensively for an item of such age and utility. So I hear you thinking, if the swing-away is so great, why am I using the fridge? Shit, give me a break. I'm just trying to show you how to make a buckaroo. Having said that, I emphasize that you will have a better experience in a finer grind of ice using the swing away. But look, in a pinch, the fridge is fine, and far be it from me to bog things down in anal irrelevancies. What's important is that we have some fun. So here we go. Um, uh, you don't want the glass to be packed with ice, okay? Fill it. Just remember, remember that every step is crucial to a successful buckaroo. No half-assed semi-fill. Live a little packet. No cubes. Please, none of that cubes will do, cubes will do, none of that. Now, pour two ounces of Jim Beam over that crushed ice. And now, crack open that bottle of the real thing and carefully fill the glass. (laughs) 
You'll need a full teaspoon of Angostura aromatic bitters. This may seem excessive to cocktail mavens more accustomed to using a dash or two. You see, the bitters cut the combined sweetness of the bourbon and coke. The proprietary top-secret mix of herbs and spices draws out the dusky flavors of the cola and the barrel-aged spirit, binds them into a symbiosis of scrumptiousness. I'm getting gentian, of course, ambergris, turmeric, cardamom, Frasier fir, riding crop, dirt, <laughs> just pulling your leg. Those are all scents from the Demeter Fragrance Library. Anyway, all that remains is to stir and enjoy. And by the way, before I move on, the spoon I'm using is a model CSM22 by Cosmos Products. It dates from 1966, stainless steel made in Japan. It's described as having a textured tree look. The handle of the spoon is a fully rounded branch style. It's fairly thin if you're used to most flatware, which is, let's face it, flat. It has a satisfying heft, a good hand feel, as we say in the trade, and lends gravitas to your cocktail preparation. And now, enjoy your buckaroo. Way out here they got a name A wind and rain and fire The rain is Tess, the fire's Joe And they call the wind Mariah Mariah blows the stars around And sends the clouds a-flying Mariah makes the mountain sound Like folks up there was dying Mariah She had me, and the sun was always shining. But then one day I left my girl, I left her far behind me. And now I'm lost, so gold I'm lost, not even God can find me. Mariah. And all alone, there ain't no word but lonely And I'm a lost and lonely man Without a star to guide me Mariah, blow my love to me I need my girl beside me
another classic. My friends, I don't like to brag, oui. but I dare say you could troll the megahertz for a long, long time before finding anything like the variety we provide you here on Buckaroo Holiday. Case in point, that set. Last thing you heard was Prefab Sprout from 1982, band led by the brilliant Patty McAloon. That was their debut single, entitled Lions in My Own Garden, Exit Someone. Kind of unwieldy, but what it is, is it's an acrostic. It's an acrostic for Limoges, the French town, where evidently Patty's girlfriend hooked up with some other dude. Limoges. You like the way I pronounce that? I try to diligently observe local accents so that when traveling, I don't embarrass myself. The true savvy cosmopolitan American will always do this. Like, for example, remember on the news, oh, a few years ago, that went something like... 
Breaking news tonight on that terrorist attack in the offices of Charlie Hebdo, a French satirical magazine. You see what I mean? You know, now you're your you're normal bonehead American, you know, you know, you know the kind I mean, you know, you know the bonehead ones. They would say Charlie Hebdo. So, you know, the terrorist attack on the offices of Charlie Hebdo. <laughs> you know, this is this is the kind of thing. You know, you know, you want to say that the terrorist attacks on the offices of Charlie Hebdo. You know, Charlie Hebdo. You know, and then, then these people won't think you're like stupid. We. Oui. That's all I'm saying. Just a word to the wise. I've actually been there to Paris. Man, they like it when you try. We. Oui. Prior to that, a beautiful, beautiful track, in my opinion, Oh My Angel, by Bertha Tillman, from, I think, 1962. That song was her debut effort. Um, She might have cut a single or two after that, but uh, that one scraped the bottom of the national charts, didn't do much, and she never had a career. And it's pretty hard to imagine that after hearing that magical, magical record. I just, I don't know, it sends me. Well, Thomas King requested more pumpkin on this broadcast after her appearance on the first one, on this podcast, I should say. There you go, Thomas. I give vault. You mind if I continue? Well, I'll take that as a yes. Just ignore her. Steve Donnelly's outside. Steve Donnelly's out there working, and it's got Pumpkin all riled up. I don't blame her, personally. I'd bark, too. But, uh... Anyway, this set started with They Call the Wind Mariah. Originally from the Lerner and Lowe musical Paint Your Wagon. This is a song that I deeply love. It was performed there by Pernell Roberts, who at the time was, um... the character Adam on the show Bonanza. The third son... He left after a couple of years. It was a big controversy. Then later on, he became Trapper John M.D. But he released an album of folk song type material. And that's one of the nicer versions of that song that I know of. I'm partial to Harv Presnell's version from the crummy movie circa 1969 or 70 or thereabouts. But, uh, But look, nothing wrong with Pernell Roberts. Nice version. Oh, no, it's not. Ah, pipe down. Just listen to Elmer Bernstein here. A little bit of his score for the Gypsy Moths. Into the Night.
tell anyone where to go. I would think it, though. Well, I had intended to go someplace after that little set, but things have changed, and I'll explain that in a minute. But first, uh, what you just heard, Go Now, which was Bessie Banks. That was, of course, the original version of uh, the song Denny Lane did as the front man for the Moody Blues. Pardon me. I felt a song coming on. So yeah, Go Now, and then before that you heard Away, which was uh, Brian Wilson, an outtake from uh, the sessions for the 1968 Beach Boys album Friends, one of my favorite Beach Boys albums. Then uh, before that was an extract from the soundtrack for the Gypsy Moths, a piece called Into the Night, and that was by Elmer Bernstein, who is uh, my favorite film composer. He was a student of Aaron Copeland's, and he wrote so many amazing scores including my childhood favorite film, The Great Escape which I used to watch on the 4.30 movie whenever any time it came on in three sections usually or two at least um, the rousing incredible score from The Magnificent Seven and To Kill a Mockingbird which is a score so beautiful it makes me weep whenever I hear it now those three titles Into the Night Away Go Now. They uh, 
kind of spell out an accidental, very short, very bad poem. I hadn't intended it that way. I just chose that music because I felt like hearing it. And then um, after I laid those tracks down, I got some news, some sad news. Uh, Nick Tosh is, is dead. And he's gone now away into the night, if I may get a little cornball. I'm going to talk about him just a little bit. Now, I was a fan of Nick's work since the early 70s when he wrote for magazines like Cream and Fusion. That was the era when I was first discovering rock and roll. And at the time, most of the music that I tended to like wasn't widely played on the radio. And the conduit between me and that music uh, were these magazines, Cream particularly. But, uh, you know, I read them all. And uh, in a way, you know, those guys formed a sensibility. Some of them were really great writers. Richard Meltzer, who was almost always incredibly annoying, but uh, hilarious. Lester Bangs, who had a lot of heart and, and a lot of, uh, well, everybody knows about Lester Bangs, you know. Then there were more straight-ahead kind of guys like Ed Ward and uh, Greel Marcus. But uh, Nick stood out. Nick was cynical about the whole apparatus of promotion and uh, the record business. That itself helped form the rock and roll sensibility that I uh, developed. But it was just great to read as writing. And uh, that, was a, that was an important thing. And I followed his work in various genres. Aside from music journalism, he was a biographer, poet, novelist. My brother Brian and I shared a love of his biographies particularly, but a lot of his articles and, and pieces that we'd come across, we'd read them to each other. We'd cackle over favorite paragraphs and we'd research music that he mentioned, obscure records and track them down, listen to them together. We uh, really had a private Nick Tosh's fan club going. Didn't matter whether he was talking about Sonny Liston or Jerry Lee Lewis or Dean Martin. It was always Nick. It was always amazing. Always full of insight and humor and always recognizable to uh, Brooklyn boys who knew a little bit about that bar culture, that street life. Um, my brother certainly a lot more than I did. So it was kind of amazing some years along when I got a message from Nick Tosh's. Evidently somebody had pointed out to him something I'd written online someplace about his book Where Dead Voices Gather, still one of my favorite books, my f absolute favorite book about music. And um, he wrote me. Um, he liked what I'd written. Still, still seems to me such a generous act. So unexpected and beautiful. As you can imagine, this was a very happy shock for me. And a feather in my cap when I told my brother about it. He was thrilled as well. So we stayed in touch and uh, eventually began hanging out some. We'd go to these places where you could smoke and drink at the same time, which became a very rare thing in New York City. And Nick in person was just like Nick on the page, just as articulate, just as irresistible a companion. There was uh, humor, tenderness, sarcasm, cynicism, spite. You know, there was actual sentimentality in him as well. Um, the kind of sentimentality only true tough guys carried. One night when we were carousing, I asked him, what's your favorite song? He thought it was a ridiculous question. 
And he gave me an equally ridiculous answer. He said, My Buddy. My Buddy was a song from 1922, recorded by all kinds of people. And, and I felt like his response was uh, both sarcastic and sincere. In any case, it cracked us both up, and I sang it to him. That tender streak was a little more well-hidden than a lot of the other aspects of his personality that I would have expected from him before I knew him. When, um, when my brother died, Nick was exceptionally comforting in ways that my brother would have appreciated. And so we got together shortly after that. I had found in my brother's wallet a couple of old gang cards. A lot of these street gangs would go to a local printer and have little business cards printed up with the name of the gang and some of the name of the members on it. Sometimes a little logo drawn from the stock illustrations book the printer had. And you would use it as a pass card. You would calling card from uh, neighborhood to neighborhood, from gang to gang. If you were uh, friends with somebody, you know, more or less, you could you could walk down uh, street in Park Slope and not get your ass kicked if you had the card that one of these boys had given you. One was from his street gang, the Schoolyard Gents, and the other one was from the Coney Island Rebels, which were an associated gang of friends that apparently accepted my brother as a, a good guy. And he treasured these cards. He carried them in his wallet for decades. So I kept the schoolyard gents card, and I gave the other one to Nick one night. His eyes kind of bugged out. I was surprised at how much it impacted him to get this card. He understood how important it was, and it seemed to be a completed triangle. As Nick said to me, this is actually from your brother to me, as much as it is from you to me, and I told him exactly right. These are the kind of things you could casually touch on, not only in hanging out with him, but in his work regularly. I learned something from this stuff. I learned something from him. Uh, things that might sound pretentious when I describe them, but are real enough, real concerns that anybody who's dealt with them will recognize. For example, I was a Catholic boy, lapsed, of course, and how does one uh, build a coherent functional morality on amoral grounds? Can you do that? You know, that kind of thing. This may sound like hooey, but um, it's, uh, I don't know. He articulated things that are um, very important to me. One was he was always himself. He was a oneer. He wasn't uh, a type. He was Nick Tosh's. He mistrusted the conspicuous virtues, the religious, political, cultural kind of things that people carry around like banners. He, he had a sensitivity to the mysteries and the commonplace, plain pleasures of life, the, the, the magic hidden in the grooves of a 45 RPM record that go beyond the kind of things that the, uh, the, the cheap-mindedness of his detractors there's a hostility in the writing of some of his critics that uh, it seems almost personal. It's strange. It's, it's almost as if he represented a threat to certain small-minded people who maybe did well in journalism school in an English class and, you know, knew the correct ways to express the correct thoughts. But, but maybe because they didn't like his stance, they didn't like the ideas he expressed, they had to attack his craft. And, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of thing I've seen a lot. And certain artists I admire, John Cassavetes and Charles Ives, for example, um, 
there's a there's a strange personal bile directed at them by people who um, by bores and I guess I guess Nick had a sensitivity to what people thought about his work who wouldn't but on another level he didn't give a fuck you know and it's that's what he said about Dean Martin that's what he admired about Dean Martin and um, it's one of the things I admired about him because it wasn't that he just just didn't give a fuck you know he 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 uh, he knew what to give a fuck about. One thing he didn't offer very much of was hope. He didn't believe in the idea. And as life has led me to places where hope tended to run dry, it was useful to have substitutes for hope. Some of these were sensual indulgence. Some of it was a kind of a discipline to look into the ordinary things in a deeper way. I used to read Ezra Pound's cantos and not comprehend almost any of it. And then every once in a while, an island of clarity would come out, something really beautiful. And um, it's a good practice because a lot of life is just as confusing and opaque. And those moments of clarity, beauty, um, truth, humor, exquisite self-indulgence can really help you carry on. I had a lot of those kind of moments with Nick and with Nick's work. And he also gave me a, a way to look for them, to find them. So Nick Tosh's, he was of a New York that was gone before he was. Now they're gone together. And I'm sorry that I can't go see him and have a drink and have a smoke. I can't smoke anymore anyway. I, I can't have a buckaroo and toast him tonight. And thank him. So here's to you, Nick. Thanks, Pally. Missing your smile and your heart. 
body, my body, nobody quite so true. Is your voice the touch of your hand just long to know that you understand my body? My body, your body, me you. That would appear to be the obvious place just to end, but let's not be obvious, shall we? That was Henry Burr, his version of my buddy. You see what I go through here? None of those sounds were uh, planned. See, this is, this is what happens when I'm trying to do something. Anyway, so Henry Burr from 1922 with my buddy. The background music behind my little spiel there about Nick. All of us have cause over the log walls to be in the remote Himalayas of Asia. You kidding me? Shaped by Gomer, sour noting them to death to prepare the audience for the easy listening melodies of hiss, chug, and puff. Yeah, unbelievable. It just, this stuff just like appears. Uh, anyway, the background sounds behind um, the Nick Tosh's spiel were from the caretaker, James Kirby. I think that'll conclude this second edition of Buckaroo Holiday. Thank you for listening. I'll have another one up in about two weeks. Now, this is a nonprofit podcast. I'm wondering, do you think I should do that Patreon thing and try to make some money off of this stuff or what? I don't know. Let me know what you think. Tell your friends about the podcast. See you next time. And I think I'll just leave off with Fred Rogers and Johnny Costa giving us some pretty good advice. Take care, everybody, and be well. You can make believe it happens or pretend that something's true. You can wish or hope or contemplate a thing you'd like to do. But until you start to do it, you will never see it through. Because the make-believe pretending just won't do it for you. You've got to do it. Every little bit, you've got to do it. Do it, do it, do it, and when you're through, You can know who did it, or you did it, you did it, you did it. It's not easy to keep trying, but it's one good way to grow. It's not easy to keep learning, but I know that this is so. When you've tried and learned, you're bigger than you were a day ago. It's not easy to keep trying, but it's one way to grow. You've got to do it. Every little bit, you've got to do it. 
do it, do it, do it, and when you're through, you can know who did it, for you did it, you did it, you did it.